Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, November 21st, 2023, the 1034th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. Now, we've been talking for the last week or so about how the regime is having a panic at all levels, and they are finally incorporating the understanding that Donald Trump actually really is widely popular among Americans, and there is no way they're going to convince the American public 
that Joe Biden could possibly win an election against Donald Trump. It's seeming less likely by the day that unless Biden somehow disappears, they will have any chance of replacing him. So they're stuck with the old, demented, corrupt pervert, and everyone in the country will be left with a very clear decision. It's either this old, demented, corrupt pervert who can't stop sniffing kids and surrendered in Afghanistan, has surrendered at the southern border, has pushed an agenda that moves the country, subverts the country to the global communist order. The fake president has pushed censorship and propaganda. His illegitimate administration attempted to mandate experimental vaccines and they're funding various foreign wars that the United States has no involvement in whatsoever. So they can have all of that again, or they can have four years of peace and prosperity if they're willing to deal with the very serious challenge of not getting upset at the TV all day, every day. It seems that supporters of that regime are beginning to understand that their project isn't actually all that popular. And people don't actually hate Donald Trump just because they're told to all day long. The fever has already broken and it's not coming back. And some of them, the very astute supporters of the regime and the actual members of the regime, have begun to realize that the problems go beyond just Donald Trump might be president again, and we're going to have to attempt to subvert this man again. And they're beginning to realize that their system, the one that keeps them in a position of wealth and status and power and control, that position is now being threatened. And the reaction to that is reverberating all the way down. And the intensity of that panic seems to be increasing. It seems like, to me, my impression is that last week we crossed some sort of threshold. It seems like there is a notable shift in not only the energy, but the pace of events and the progression of those events. We had that visit from Xi last week, and it just seems like things have started happening back to back, really significant events lining up. And we discussed many of them yesterday. Of course, we have the realization from the elites that things aren't going well. The polls look horrible for Biden, including among the groups that the Democrats rely on to sell the country the illusion that Democrat politics are popular, that uniparty politics are popular. The J6 tapes came out. The meltdown over that has been significant. We had the judge's decision in Colorado to claim that Trump actually did stage a very violent insurrection, but Section three of the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to him. Trump is now waging his own lawfare over that decision, cutting the regime off at the pass. We have Elon Musk in Twitter going after the censorship regime and specifically Media Matters, which opens up Pandora's box on the WikiLeaks Podesta emails and Pizzagate and that whole thing. We have the presidential election in Argentina going to who seems to be the Donald Trump of Argentina. And all of that was just between Xi Jinping's meeting with the American business leaders and the end of Sunday. And if that wasn't enough, at some point in the afternoon yesterday, we just got a flood of news about 
new lawsuits being filed, all of them in opposition to the regime. So there's Trump's filing now in Colorado. The Media Matters suit was filed and released to the public. Ken Paxton has his own effort against Media Matters. Truth Social filed a suit yesterday. Donald Trump filed his own lawsuit. And then Ken Paxton is also going after Pfizer. So that's a pretty big Monday and Monday afternoon. And we will get to all of that in a little bit. We also had a major push in the evening on Monday and this morning, Tuesday, to alert the public about Judge Totenberg's decision down in Georgia to schedule a trial in January over the voting machines, saying that it's not a conspiracy theory. There actually are problems. Now, that decision came out not this past Friday, but the Friday before. And the major media push, the push among influencers, comes 10 days after that decision. It's interesting timing, to say the very least. I imagine they want it fresh in people's minds as we go into this Thanksgiving holiday. And while these big, important events are happening in the real world, from the other side, we have a narrative storyline blowing back toward us about how we are all fascists. I got into a little bit of that last week, but MSNBC was going really hard with this stuff on Morning Joe this morning. Steve Bannon on War Room spent a bunch of time on it, and I think that everything he had to say was super valuable. I want to approach it in a slightly different direction, so we're going to play some clips and talk about those. But before we get started with that, I want everybody to think back two years ago to right before Thanksgiving. The New York Times actually has a piece out today celebrating the two year anniversary of Omicron. The headline in the New York Times article, Omicron, now two years old, is not done with us yet. The dominant variant of the coronavirus has proved to be not only staggeringly infectious, but an evolutionary marvel. The article then goes on to describe how Omicron has had all of these different subvariants, and we are still in danger. Toward the end of the article, they note that as Omicron continues to evolve, epidemiologists still see a benefit to vaccinations. They say they could save up to 49,000 lives per year. And that the vaccines will be more effective if they're updated to keep up with the evolving virus. They just can't let it go. So that was our gift a couple Thanksgivings ago. They like to make people think that they should not and cannot be together over the holidays. And we've seen them pull this off a few years in a row now. And if memory serves, the very famous shoe bomber was a Christmas Day surprise And a few years ago, we had that very weird incident down in Nashville that damaged a nearby AT&T service facility and some other structures and is still largely mysterious. Kind of the way that whole Las Vegas shooting remains largely mysterious. So they like to mess with the holidays, and I wouldn't be surprised if they messed with Thanksgiving and Christmas this year. There are plenty of events for which they have seeded narratives. Any of them could happen at any time, whether it's a brand new pandemic, something like Marburg 
or a terrorist attack or the first sign of nuclear war or some assassination attempt, an economic crash, a celebrity death, maybe Jimmy Carter's death to go on top of his wife's passing over the weekend. It'll be something to attempt to get everybody back on the same page or to make sure that the sides are as split and contentious as possible at Thanksgiving. What you can't have is people all coming together in harmony, understanding that something has been done to them by this uniparty element of the global regime, and many things have been done in their names, and everybody is kind of just sick of it. They can't have people getting together and coming to understand that about one another. That would ruin the whole thing. If people from quote unquote both sides realized that they all wanted what's best and despite their past political differences, they can understand right now they actually have a common enemy and it's not one another. It's those people pitting them against one another in order to benefit the agenda of that global regime and to profit greatly themselves while all of that is happening. They increase their power, their status, their wealth throughout these concurrent American crises while people lose their jobs and careers and financial stability. Now, over the course of the past few years, it's become clear to most people that we are fairly aligned with our fellow Americans, at least generally speaking, about what we want. We have come to understand that there are basic fundamental things on which we agree that are all much more important than the story we are told by systems of power that only serve to divide us. It turns out most of those stories aren't even based in reality. So why are we hating one another over them? A lot of people are realizing that and have realized it. And those people are all starting to get on the same page with one another, which is the wrong page. That page is the page you only end up on as the product of what they call mis and dis and malinformation, which means, as I've said many times, anything that leads you astray from the central narrative. If you don't end up where they want you to go, then it is quite clear you've been misled by what? By all of this information. And if that information has misled you, that means the information is misleading from their perspective, which means it's misinformation, disinformation or malinformation. And it's mostly malinformation at this point, because it seems like everybody just keeps saying the no, no words to all our standard issue villagers on purpose. It's like they have fun doing it. And hey, commies, I hate to break it to you. We do have fun doing it and people have fun hearing it and we're not going to stop. So we're all getting back on the same page, which is not their page. It's all happening right around the holidays when people are going to be getting together with people they don't see for most of the year, people they care about most of the time, and they're going to have conversations. And some of those conversations will end up being about politics, society, culture, and people might begin to coalesce for the first time around a common understanding of where things are headed and how that wouldn't be so good for anyone involved. And if that happens, well, the regime is in real trouble 
because that means that people are going to be fortified in their beliefs, knowing that they have other people around them who they are close to, who they respect, who they love, who they are willing to go to bat for and people who will be willing to return the favor when it's necessary. In that environment, it becomes pretty difficult to marginalize people and cancel people. All of those cultural weapons whereby they keep people in line through peer pressure from one's own peer group, those weapons go away. And then what do they have left? The social media thing already isn't working. So you can't have people getting together. You can't have them agreeing. You can't have them getting on the same page when that's the wrong page. Getting everybody on the wrong page together is the regime's worst possible nightmare. So how can you keep them apart? Well, you can have pandemics. You can ruin the airlines and make it impossible for people to travel. You can make the money worthless. So people have to spend far too much to get anywhere, like gas prices, for instance, or to buy each other gifts for Christmas, or even to have the Thanksgiving dinner you're accustomed to. There are all sorts of ways they can affect how people relate when together over the holidays, and they never fail to do it. And I know some people think, oh, that's conspiratorial thinking. You can't possibly think they're just trying to ruin everybody's holidays every single year. <laughs> yeah, I can absolutely think that. And you can see it in the world. And you can also think, why wouldn't they want to do that? They lied about a pandemic. They've lied about everything. They lied about a stolen election. They've done everything they possibly can to destroy the nuclear family, to atomize culture, and to pit people against one another. That is the basic foundational strategy of collectivist ideologies played out in the world. And we're going to get to some more of that too. So yes, of course, I believe they would do that. And the fact that you can see them doing it year after year after year after year means the only way to deny it is to suggest that those events that pop up around the holidays and then are maximized in that certain way with that narrative manipulation designed to disrupt people's time together is by simply giving the regime the benefit of the doubt just because you think they're not doing that. Seems like a pretty strange reason to keep denying things on behalf of the regime that keeps doing all these things. So last week we talked about the fact that they are understanding Trump is going to be back in office and they need to figure out how to handle Trump. Is there going to be a way that they can impeach him? Probably not. It didn't work the first time. They didn't even come close to being successful at impeaching him. And again, all of this under the assumption that things are going to go as normal as they have in the past, that all of this is real, that there will be an election, etc. We're going to assume the normal state of things for the sake of this conversation, because as always, we have to walk down two paths at the same time so that we can understand both the projected reality and the empirical observable reality. Trump will be back in office. They won't be able to impeach him. They won't be able to get a 25th Amendment against him. I doubt there's much chance they could pull off a successful assassination, although I imagine they will try and I imagine they've tried in the past. 
And if none of those attempts to get rid of Donald Trump are going to work, then what they need to do is try to delegitimize Trump in the eyes of the public as they did the last time. But of course, we're in a different scenario now. People have had some experience with Trump. The regime is not going to be able to say that Donald Trump stole the election or that he only won by colluding with Russia. If they want to go through and forensically audit every element of the election, I say two thumbs up, have at it. I would love to see it happen. I am not the least bit concerned about Donald Trump being able to win more real lawful American votes than anyone else who is up against him. So I'm certainly not worried about Donald Trump needing to steal elections or being unable to defend himself against claims of stealing elections. So they're going to need to try to portray Donald Trump and his supporters as the most dangerous thing that has ever happened to America and stoke a civil war and violence and chaos among their utterly delusional base of degenerate communists. And they're going to have to do that by portraying everything Donald Trump does as the next step toward Donald Trump being Hitler and America turning into Nazi Germany. They are going to sell the shit out of that. They want that to be the narrative. And they know that their controlled opposition on the uniparty right is going to help them accomplish that. All of these people who I have been told for the last year in particular, all these media figures and influencers and politicians and various leaders around the country who are our allies. Well, they're not our allies. They are going to be the ones who side with the uniparty left and say Donald Trump really is Hitler and his followers are all Nazis. And it doesn't matter what those election results said. We cannot allow this man. We cannot allow these people to exert any power or control in our society, regardless of whether or not they've been put in charge by the people. And if you don't believe that the uniparty right and the uniparty left are going to come together on this, I would suggest that we may see a major signal on this in the Ron DeSantis Gavin Newsom debate coming up in 10 days where what will be displayed to us. This is all for the spectacle of it. They want to change the narrative. They think that getting Gavin and Ron together might be able to do that. They want Gavin and Ron to fight as though there is nothing they could ever agree about. And then they will come together and agree that Donald Trump and his supporters are very dangerous for the country. They are going to help one another sell Donald Trump hatred to one another's audience. They're going to say to the uniparty left, hey, Ron DeSantis is your guy. He hates Donald Trump and his supporters just as much as you do. And Ron DeSantis is going to help Gavin Newsom look like the reasonable, responsible Democrat to his supporters when Gavin agrees that while he has nothing to do with Ron DeSantis's politics, he does agree that Ron DeSantis is right about Donald Trump. That's what we are going to get. And uniparty elitists on the left and right will come together and agree that Donald Trump is the big problem. 
That's what this television event is for. It is basically an advertisement for the idea that there could be a unification between wannabe elites on the uniparty left and the uniparty right if they work together to get rid of Donald Trump. And because both the uniparty left and the uniparty right are faced with the near certainty of being utterly destroyed and discredited and disavowed by the entire nation, they essentially have nowhere to turn but to each other, and they are more than happy to stop their little tickle fighting, knowing that they could get right back to it if only they're able to get rid of Trump. If they don't get rid of Trump, then all of them are absolutely finished because who is going to take any of them seriously in the future where the uniparty loses? It's not like in 2017 when they can just say, well, yeah, of course we were for Ted Cruz at the time, but now we're totally on board. No one's going to buy that. And no one's going to buy that they really thought Joe Biden really won and was the legitimate president. Nobody's going to buy their excuses about Trump and the vaccines. All they did was participate in the usurpation. They participated in the anti-Trump hate movement, and they wanted to look smart the whole time while doing it. So they pretended that Ron DeSantis was really the smart, responsible decision. That's what the country really needed. No, you clowns, you were told from the beginning. And naturally, they are all losing their minds together and they are turning their collective derangement and unleashing all that confused rage at Trump supporters. Donald Trump mocked them over the weekend at his speech, talking about how a disease was named for him, Trump derangement syndrome. And he's exactly right. These people are legitimately mentally ill. One of Ron's DeSantis simps, a, a beefy gay man with bleached hair and a lisp named Chris Nelson, just changed the numbers on a poll so that DeSantis was at 56 and Trump at 9%. And he posted it thinking that that would be a great example to everybody about how all the polls are fake. When really all it did was show that the only way Ron could ever seem like he's ahead is if they legitimately just reversed the numbers. These people have lost their minds, but that's nothing new. They've spent months now, maybe a year now, calling Trump supporters cult members and mocking them for Trump's vaccine, not understanding that Donald Trump gave all his supporters more than ample reason to understand that we did not need the vaccine. And it turned out we were the least likely people to take the vaccine, which immediately breaks down their claims about a cult. But that hasn't stopped them. It's only made them crazier. And they've gotten continually crazier in the same way the left did in 2015 and 2016. And you can take it from me because I was in Hollywood and quote unquote on the left and watched the very same thing happen among my friend group, among my peer group. People just started absolutely losing their minds over Donald Trump. And I thought Trump was offensive and probably stupid and had poor taste and maybe was racist, maybe not, maybe was corrupt, maybe not. I didn't know, but it seemed like there was enough there to believe it. 
But then we had people in pink pussy hats absolutely losing their shit all the time. And now we have that from people who are quote unquote on the right. And they do actually align with this opinion from the uniparty left. Of course they do. They work together in the controlled opposition dynamic. They represent two versions of a false story where the conclusion of both stories is to lead you in a direction the global regime wants you to move in support of their agenda. Both of those choices are false, and the confrontation and the discord that results in the argument over those two choices allows the regime to do whatever it wants while the truth exists outside of that controlled opposition dynamic. But of course, in the false reality, you don't actually have access to anything outside that controlled opposition dynamic. Everything outside of that is a conspiracy theory. That's where the mis and dis and malinformation are in the false reality. The truth is in the controlled opposition dynamic. In empirical, observable reality, the truth is outside the controlled opposition dynamic. The controlled opposition dynamic is the fabrication, and it's pretty obvious that that is the reality-based perspective here. But applying the total inversion within the false reality, the truth exists in the controlled opposition dynamic, and it is at those points where the uniparty right and the uniparty left agree about the underlying facts and about the conclusions they should draw where we find the truth. That is where the real truth is. When the controlled opposition from both sides agrees to the underlying facts and the meaning we should extract. Now, with that in mind, let's hit the first clip from Morning Joe. Have a responsibility to, to really to tune out the voices of of the haters, of, of the people that are constantly uh, double shilling and triple checking and shilling for him and suggesting Sick. that somehow they're being biased, bending over backwards, treating him like a normal candidate. He's not a normal candidate. He is running to end American democracy as we know it. He's an authoritarian who a, a court uh, in, in Colorado two days ago ruled that, that he led an insurrection against the United States government. He's charged with leading schemes to help overthrow the United States government. So, so if they want to frame it uh, that way, that's fine. If, if you want to be fair, if you want to be fair, then you will frame this uh, as uh, Joe Biden being the candidate that supports American democracy and Donald Trump, a candidate who supports a new form of government here, this authoritarian. It's really that simple. And by the way, Reverend Allen, people go, oh, you can't compare him to past Nazi leaders. You can't compare him to this past Nazi leader or that past fascist leader because he hasn't done that. Well, what hasn't he done? He hasn't done the things that the American judicial system did not allow him to do last time, but may very well allow him to do this time or a judicial system that will be ignored by Donald Trump and ran over by Donald Trump to create the greatest constitutional crisis of our lifetimes. Just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he won't do it when he gets a chance to do it. He's and if he is well. voted into office, then a lot of these people that are talking about literal or figurative or whatever the hell they're saying, you're going to look like idiots. 
uh, because he will do, he will get away with, he will imprison, he will execute whoever he's allowed to imprison, execute, uh, 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 drive from the country. Just look at his past. It's not really hard to read. The only Again, the only thing that stood between him and the destruction of American democracy was the federal judiciary. No doubt about it. And, and I think that... Uh- so Donald Trump is going to go into office next time and he is going to prosecute and imprison and execute whoever he wants. The first four years, he didn't do anything like that. And that was only because the courts stopped him from doing all those things. Now, does that sound true to anyone? Did Donald Trump try to do any of those things? No, he didn't. It was very clear that he was not going to attempt to prosecute any of his political opponents whatsoever during those first four years in office. But this time he's going to do it, according to Joe Scarborough. And the truth is that entire clip was basically just one big advertisement for Donald Trump's next term as president. The American people actually want to see all of these corrupt and compromised political criminals actually be prosecuted and they want to see people held accountable. And if people have committed crimes against humanity or crimes against children or crimes against the country and the penalty for those crimes is death, people are going to want to see those executions. That's not about violence. That's about justice. That's about enforcing a system of laws. That's about actual accountability for crimes committed from positions of public power or in order to achieve or hold on to positions of public power. I recorded an episode February 15th of 2023 called What Killing Spree, where I talked about the series of reruns that we've seen over the last couple of years, and I'm sure we will have another series of that same rerun. All of these nervous, anxious stories about how Donald Trump has brought back federal executions and intends to use them. That is supposed to paint Donald Trump as an authoritarian dictator. He is just going to decide who needs to die, and then those people will be put to death in federal facilities. That's not how it's going to happen at all. In fact, if we are right, if myself and my friends at Badlands and the War Room crew and really not anyone else, but if we're all right, then all of the work to prove these crimes beyond a shadow of a doubt so that no one in the public has any doubt about the guilt of the people who have committed these crimes. If all that work is being done as we believe it to be, then it won't be Donald Trump looking to punish his political opponents or those who have persecuted him and his supporters. It will be the people of the United States demanding that the duly elected president exercise the authorities of his office and that our system of laws and our courts do the work they were designed to do. That's not injustice and it's not authoritarianism. That is justice and a properly functioning society. Because if people can commit grave crimes against the country, against children, against humanity at large, and see no accountability for that whatsoever, then the whole corrupt regime just continues on. 
Joe Scarborough mentioned that a judge decided Donald Trump committed insurrection. And I mentioned that Trump challenged that in a filing. This is from The Hill this morning. Trump plaintiffs appeal Colorado 14th Amendment ruling. Former President Trump and the group of plaintiffs battling over whether the former president should be disqualified from the Colorado ballot under the 14th Amendment both appealed the case to the state's top court Monday. A Colorado judge ruled Friday that Trump had engaged in insurrection by inciting the January 6th, 2021, very violent insurrection. They didn't write that. They wrote Capitol Riot. But the judge tossed the lawsuit by finding the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to the presidency. Trump, in his appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court, said he agreed with the latter part of the ruling, keeping him on the state's ballot, but is appealing on other issues. Quote, but the district court nonetheless made legal and factual findings wholly unsupported in the law, and these errors demand review, especially if the petitioners in this matter also seek review of the sole dispositive issue upon which President Trump prevailed. Trump's attorney wrote, raising 11 issues in their appeal. So I mentioned yesterday that the judge in that case, Judge Sarah Wallace, wrote 95 pages worth of her decision about how Donald Trump actually had committed insurrection. The only evidence being used in this case was the sham report from the January 6th committee. They brought people like Cash Patel in to testify and Cash Patel's testimony blew up their entire case. Anyone who watches Cash Patel's testimony would see that quite clearly. I mentioned yesterday that their lawfare efforts were intended to get these decisions made at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would decide, does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment apply to the president as an officer, quote unquote, or not? And of course, they would want the court to accept as fact the claim that Trump had participated in insurrection. The regime attorney Neil Katyal said on MSNBC the other day that this decision was exactly what they wanted. And he basically described the scenario where they get to play that sort of lawfare, get the decisions they want, and then that's going to apply to Trump more broadly, and then they can get him off all sorts of ballots like that. Well, the Trump side has now headed that strategy off at the pass, and they're going to make the Colorado Supreme Court rule on whether or not this district court judge's decision to claim as fact that Donald Trump participated in insurrection was correct or not. It should offend anyone's notion of justice to see a judge take as evidence a report compiled by an illegitimate congressional committee and then decide and imply the legal weight of her position that a president committed insurrection based on the findings in that report. A lot of people have brought up the notion that if someone like Donald Trump wanted to bring one of these similar challenges to have Joe Biden left off the ballot in one state or another, there are reports compiled by congressional committees that could then be submitted as evidence of Joe Biden's wrongdoing. Is that really the point that we want to reach as a country? And of course it's not. The entire idea is ridiculous and it's born out of desperation. And think about the chain of events that have led to the formation of this new quote unquote fact in the world. 
We have the very violent insurrection, as they refer to it, on January 6th, 2021. People began calling it an insurrection, saying that Trump was involved in the insurrection. And it's been almost three years now of them doing that. They put together this sham committee. The sham committee gets evidence on one side, brings in witnesses from one side. No one gets to challenge any of what was presented and they release a report. They agree that Donald Trump has committed insurrection. Now, Jack Smith, the special counsel, does not indict Trump for insurrection. He doesn't bring that. He doesn't think he can prove that Donald Trump was involved in an insurrection. And now we have this Colorado case. That's about whether or not Donald Trump can be removed from a ballot. The case is decided on the basis that Donald Trump is not an officer, in quotes, as defined by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But the judge has also decided that Trump did participate in insurrection, according to the January 6th report. So because people started calling it an insurrection and people kept calling it an insurrection, and now other people need to be able to call it an insurrection for legal purposes, the judge has created a new fact about the world that Donald Trump actually did participate in an insurrection. We are being told that this decision somehow carries the weight of law, and it's not just this person's opinion in a case that wasn't about this. They're actually hoping to get this insurrection thing to stand so that Jack Smith can use it later. They are using all of these different cases to try to create a basis for their other cases, and they are completely abusing to the point of obliteration our legal system in this country. They are absolutely destroying people's faith in our institutions that they are always so worried about. Joe Scarborough freaking out about our democracy as we know it. It's amazing that they always revert to that phrase especially when it's them doing all the work to legitimately render these institutions useless, except as a corrupt means of enforcing the regime's own power and control. And I suppose the sad part is maybe they were always that way. So let's get to more of the Morning Joe freakout over fascism and hat tip to the War Room crew for always compiling this Morning Joe stuff. This is the messaging that matters to the standard issue villagers on the uniparty left. These are the broad strokes arguments that they will be making at any time. And then the rest of regime media throughout the day unfolds and unpacks these ideas in these arguments and adds their little wrinkles so that all of the standard issue villagers have something they can say that they think sounds smart while advertising how victimized and horrified they always are by everything that's happening. Too delicate to call a fascist a fascist or to call fascism fascism for years. People say, oh, yeah, but you know, we don't have the violence component. We, despite the fact Donald Trump throughout the first campaign time and again kept saying, beat the hell out of my opponents and, and I will pay your lawyer's fees, praising a congressman, as we said, for beating the hell out of a news reporter, for asking a question, for asking a question about health care reform, Charlottesville, good people on both sides trying to justify that. 
January 6th then comes. There's really, there's really no ambiguity there. It's like Mussolini going after government buildings with violence, taking over government buildings with violence on his rise. Then we, yeah, we, we have January 6th. We have the example of Paul Pelosi, a guy, uh, his, a speaker of the house, his husband, speaker of the house that, uh, he calls deranged and crazy and all these other things, dehumanizes and then he, he still, he still revels in an 82, 83-year-old man having the hell beaten out of him. So the violence component of fascism is there. I just want to go through again this New York Times article, and let's just go, let's just go through them. Um, because it's, it's time that fascism is called fascism, and Americans know exactly what they're voting for. And, you know, I, I've heard people uh, poo-poo this and go, oh, people on the far left. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a conservative. I'm on the right. I, I, there's a difference between conservatism, radicalism, and fascism. This is fascism. This is this is uh, the Times uh, quotes uh, an expert on the topic. Fascism is generally understood, and this is boilerplate stuff, really, for what fascism is. Fascism is generally understood as an authoritarian, far-right system of government in which hypernationalism is a central component. Check. It also features a cult of personality around a strongman leader. Check. The justification of violence or retribution against opponents. Check. And the repeated denigration of the rule of law. Check, said Peter Hayes, a historian who has studied the rise of fascism. Okay, so Joe Scarborough is worried that people are too delicate about when it's appropriate to call others fascists. These people have been calling Donald Trump and his supporters fascists for eight years now. And that's among other words like deplorables and maggots. And we discussed how they freaked out over the word vermin last week, despite being the people who have dehumanized over half of America's population now for eight and a half years. But he doesn't want to be delicate about it anymore. He wants to call a fascist a fascist. Joe is a straight shooter and he wants to shoot you straight this time about who Donald Trump is and what he represents and what his supporters are actually supporting. He notes the violence that is associated with fascism. And while there is no violence from the Trump and MAGA side, except for that very violent insurrection that the tapes prove was nothing like the official story tells us, but he can still create an idea that the Trump movement might be violent. Donald Trump made some violent comments about people causing havoc at his rallies in 2015 and 2016. And that's the violence we can point to. He points to Mussolini using violence to go after government buildings and says that that's Trump as if Mussolini doing it is proof that Trump would do it. That is Totally circular reasoning because these examples are supposed to prove that Donald Trump is a fascist. And then he brings up Paul Pelosi hammer time as if that has anything to do with Donald Trump or Trumpism. That event wasn't even real in many important aspects. And we were certainly lied to about it. And we were certainly encouraged to extract a bunch of false meaning from it. And these are his examples of how the violence element is in play when you're talking about Donald Trump, the fascist. Now, they're referencing a New York Times article from Monday 
with the headline, Trump's dire words raise new fears about his authoritarian bent. And so, of course, they have to quote all the fascism experts like Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a professor at NYU who is absolutely bonkers. I've interacted with this lady on Twitter before about the Ukraine war. Of course, massive fan of the Ukraine war, loves Ukrainian Nazis. And she also has the advantage of being Jewish, so she can't ever actually be labeled according to her actual stated beliefs. You can't say that she's clearly supporting Nazis, that she's clearly involved in a fascistic movement because she's Jewish. It's like how black people can't be racist. The Times quotes her as saying, there are echoes of fascist rhetoric and they're very precise. Oh, precise echoes. Got it. The overall strategy is an obvious one of dehumanizing people so that the public will not have as much of an outcry at the things that you want to do. Again, total inversion within the false reality. This is what they have done to Donald Trump and to MAGA supporters. And then after dehumanizing them, they've censored them, debanked them and tried to imprison them all with one side of the population clapping along like circus seals. How about this spectacular paragraph that refutes the entire article, but they just include it as if they have handled this counterpoint. Mr. Trump's relatively isolationist views run counter to the hunger for empire and expansion that characterized the rule of Hitler in Germany and Mussolini in Italy. As president, he was never able to fully wield the military for political purposes, meeting resistance when he sought to deploy troops against protesters, as if that story about what he wanted to do with leftist BLM Antifa protesters and domestic terrorists means that he wasn't able to use the military for political purposes as if he was stopped. He didn't want to. There was no point at which he was going to use the military for political purposes, and he actually held back on doing anything specifically for that reason. And remember, Joe Scarborough picked this out of the article, these comments from historian Peter Hayes. Fascism is generally understood as an authoritarian, far-right system of government in which hyper-nationalism is a central component. Now, that part is already not true, but Let's just keep on going. This is the part from Hayes. It often features a cult of personality around a strongman leader, the justification of violence or retribution against opponents, and the repeated denigration of the rule of law. So these are some characteristics listed by a historian who studies the rise of fascism. Are these all of the characteristics? No, of course not. These are just a few that they have picked out so that they can attempt to pin these characteristics on Donald Trump, thus completing the picture of Donald Trump, the fascist, despite the fact that Donald Trump doesn't do any of the fascist things. He also noted that past fascist leaders appeal to a sense of victimhood to justify their actions. So this framing, this is the framing we are being given that allows them to describe Donald Trump as a fascist. And of course, they also call him an authoritarian as well. And naturally, they have to nail that part down. But it says in this article, 
Some experts on authoritarianism said that while Trump's recent language has begun to more closely resemble that used by leaders like Hitler or Benito Mussolini, he does not quite mirror fascist leaders of the past. Still, they say he does exhibit traits similar to current strongmen like Viktor Orban of Hungary or Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey. Now, Scarborough noted that Trump didn't go beyond what the courts said he could do. But despite his obvious respect and regard and obedience to the rule of law in this country, he is still an authoritarian, even though they also admit he's not really an authoritarian. And of course he's not. Donald Trump never at any point exceeded the power of his office. Total inversion within the false reality. Let's get back to the clip. Past fascist leaders appealed to a sense of victimhood to justify their actions. Check. We're entitled because we've been robbed. We've been victimized. We've been cheated and robbed. Check, check, check. The whining, the snowflakery coming from the Trump people. I mean, a, a, a snowflake falls on their shoulders and, and they're victimized. Uh, they're victimized by history books on Hank Aaron. Uh, they're victimized by, by, by kids' books uh, on Roberto Clemente. They're victimized by tweets. They're victimized. You name it. They are victimized by everything. They are such weak snowflakes. And they're using that victimization to justify violence against their opponents, Jonathan. You got that, MAGA? We're weak. We're victims. We're snowflakes. Now, again, you have to understand Joe Scarborough and his purpose in these clips as being informing the standard issue villagers on the uniparty left about what they are supposed to think of anyone who brings up the no-no words at Thanksgiving. Oh, that's a fascist. Oh, that's a fascist. I know what a fascist sounds like. I was just given an entire lesson on fascism by Joe Scarborough this week. When my relatives tell me about how they lost their jobs because they were unwilling to get vaccinated, I'm going to let them know that they are just playing victims. They don't have the right to act like victims just because they were forced out of their jobs or careers after 15 or 20 years. It was necessary to preserve the health of everybody. And it turns out it didn't work, but it was still necessary to do it. And they should have been happy to do it. They're not victims. They're actually the evil ones in that scenario. And sadly, there are people who still believe that. Joe Scarborough's purpose is playing on that dynamic to further erode people's relationships right before the holidays. And for the record, if you go on to the X platform, formerly Twitter, and pay attention to what the DeSantis simps and DeSantis supporters say on a regular basis about Trump supporters, they call them snowflakes all the time because Trump supporters will actually defend Donald Trump and call people out on their anti-Trump BS. It is a tactic by the uniparty left and their controlled opposition on the uniparty right to try to portray the actual victims of the regime snowflakes for pointing it out while pretending they are being constantly bullied and threatened by Trump supporters. 
It's absolutely wild. And as I mentioned yesterday, they have a new trend of appealing to current day feminism when they say in defense of people like Christina Pushaw or Jenna Ellis or Tracy Beans that they're being attacked as women. The Trump supporters are attacking women. Do you want to associate with a movement that has supporters who attack women? All of the uniparty right influencers and media figures in Con Inc. and the GOP elite and establishment, these Ron DeSantis supporters have all become modern feminists. But let's continue on with some more from MSNBC. This is such an important conversation to call out what we're seeing clearly and plainly. It reminds me of 2015, 2016, a lot of media organizations struggled to characterize some of the things he was saying. We come up with phrases like racially tinged and instead of eventually where we got, where we simply called things racist when they were racist. And I think that's where we are now, too, where it's time to say these things are fascist. Use the word. And I know we've been doing yeah. that on this show for a while, but it does seem like media organizations, others are starting to really do the same and make clear what is happening here, what Trump has done before and what is threatening to do. And I actually was at a, a journalism conference over the weekend. Our friend Molly Jung Fast was on a panel with me and we talked about how we should be approaching this candidate as journal, this campaign as journalists, how we should say he is an insurrectionist candidate. And yes, while of course there will be focus on the day-to-day -day developments, they'll be focused on polls, they'll be focused on policy. One thing that we that I said there and we, we endorsed as a panel is the idea of we need to focus on the stakes of this election. It's not just the day-to-day -day mm -hmm. events, it is the stakes. And frankly, the stakes are our democracy itself. When we hear Donald Trump put forth his plans for what a second term would look like and embrace this fascist rhetoric and policy. So we have to use the word. We have to use the word fascist. I hung out with my friend Molly Jong Fast. She actually came out of her apartment after staying only in her apartment for two years, huddled up underneath a blanket in the corner ordering Uber Eats because everybody knows it was just too COVID outside. And Molly Jong Fast is this rich kid ne'er-do-well awful writer and thinker with ridiculous clown hair who is a New York socialite and really did spend like 14 straight months in her apartment. But they've agreed that Donald Trump is a fascist and his supporters are fascists. And now that they've agreed on that, they think it's important that everybody use the word, use the word fascist, call Trump a fascist at every opportunity, call his supporters fascists. We're a year out from an election. We're going into the holidays. And the thing is, if we want to use these holidays to the maximum benefit of the regime in power in order to help them retain power against this incredibly popular political candidate who we can't seem to imprison, the best thing to do is call everybody fascist, even if there are family members or our friends who we run into over these holidays, we should let them know that they're fascists. It's important to use the word fascist. Now, what is going to come of them using the word fascist all the time while using it as defined within and a product of this total inversion within the false reality? What's going to happen when they use that word all the time? Well, the word is going to lose its meaning completely. And there's some sense in which they have already 
undefined the word and attempted to redefine it, the redefinition is not going to work because it's clearly false, which means that it's not going to be taken seriously and the word will become undefined again. Maybe we can get back to that original definition and that is where we need to be. But the problem is the controlled opposition will accept their definition of fascism and just say it doesn't apply to them or maybe try to make the word funny and then take it upon themselves and mock the uniparty left with that. But the important thing is to bring back the definition of this word because the definition of the word and the concept are actually useful and important because they describe something real in the world and something that is quite visible right now under that proper definition. Now, if all of these people are worried in the future about being pursued and prosecuted, perhaps imprisoned, and then for extreme cases, perhaps being put to death, what they would want is to make all of that look like a political persecution so that they can have sympathy and no one will believe that they actually committed their crimes. They're all going to know it was really Donald Trump who was the criminal the whole time. And then, of course, there's the fact that the word fascist definitionally does apply to all of them. It's not only not Trump supporters, it's the people calling Trump supporters fascists who are the fascists. That is the truth we need to get back to. They don't care if Donald Trump and his supporters are actually fascist or if anyone believes they're fascist. They just don't want the real definition of the word fascism to be understood because then people will be able to see how it applies to exactly them. And that's not the sort of thing they want to deal with when they are facing their potential imprisonment or potential execution. And there certainly are people in the regime who have committed crimes to warrant that punishment. Now, I want to make all of this really clear because we have had the idea pushed on us for quite a long time that fascism is a right wing ideology, and that does not make any sense. It's not true relative to the core concepts, and it's not true based on the roots of fascism and where it came from. It is 100 percent a collectivist ideology. This is the entry from Encyclopedia Britannica. This is not some MAGA world publication. This is just the go-to encyclopedia. Fascism, political ideology, and mass movement that dominated many parts of Central, Southern, and Eastern Europe between 1919 and 1945, and that also had adherents in Western Europe, the United States, South Africa, Japan, Latin America, and the Middle East. Europe's first fascist leader, Benito Mussolini, took the name of his party from the Latin word fasces, which referred to a bundle of elm or birch rods, usually containing an axe, used as a symbol of penal authority in ancient Rome. Although fascist parties and movements differed significantly from one another, they had many characteristics in common, including extreme militaristic nationalism, contempt for electoral democracy, and political and cultural liberalism a belief in natural social hierarchy and the rule of elites and the desire to create a Volksgemeinschaft, German for people's community, in which individual interests would be subordinated to the good of the nation. Do any of those describe MAGA at all? 
I would argue that the only place you could even make a coherent argument that one of them represents some version of a MAGA aligned ideological position would be the extreme militaristic nationalism. And there's nothing extreme or militaristic about MAGA nationalism. It's just America first. That's all it is. We also believe in Mexico first for Mexico, Canada first for Canada, China first for China, Russia first for Russia, France first for the French. It is nationalistic only to the extent that we put our country first. And if America is not taken care of, we don't extend the indentured servitude of each and every American in order to do little things around the world to advance the global regime's agenda. Contempt for electoral democracy? Well, that's ridiculous. We're the people trying to restore elections in this country. Contempt for political liberalism? Well, maybe if that necessarily includes corruption and compromise, the principles aren't bad. It just doesn't work in reality when everyone is corrupt and everyone is compromised to the global regime and we don't have elections. Contempt for cultural liberalism? Only if cultural liberalism means that we have to endorse the entire globo homo agenda, the entire gender agenda, and we have to endorse it for children. Joe Scarborough even mentioned this stuff about kids books. That's not an example of being a snowflake. That's an example of not wanting to put gay pornography in front of little kids at school. Social hierarchy and the rule of elites. There will always be hierarchies. If we can base them on actual merit, that is a wonderful thing. But absolutely no one in MAGA supports rule by elites and individual interests being subordinated to the good of the nation, especially by force, which is what these actual authoritarians strive for. There isn't even a notion of that in MAGA. So even along these mainstream terms, it breaks down almost immediately. Right-wing authoritarianism may be an oxymoron. If not, it's close. The further right you go on the spectrum, the more anarchy there is. The further you are from centralized control. I am not sure there's any way it's even possible to have decentralized authoritarianism, although I would be interested in having a conversation with someone who thinks there is. I suppose in a system where you could have enforced direct democracy, you might be able to marry decentralization and authoritarianism, but I'm not real sure about that. There is an article on the website of the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE.org, with the headline, There's No Denying the Socialist Roots of Fascism. I believe I have shared this article before, but... I want to go through just a little bit of this to be very, very clear about what this actually is and what they are attempting to thrust onto Donald Trump and his supporters. In the past few decades, there has been a deep discussion about the ideological roots of fascism and above all, a great misunderstanding about the collectivist principles that this authoritarian movement promulgated. To understand this ideology better, it is necessary to know in depth the life beliefs and principles of both its political leaders, such as Benito Mussolini, and its philosophical leaders, such as Giovanni Gentile. Mussolini was an Italian military man, journalist, and politician who was a member of the Italian Socialist Party for 14 years. 
1910, he was appointed editor of the weekly La Lada di Classe, The Class Struggle. And the following year, he published an essay titled The Trentino as Seen by a Socialist. His journalism and political activism led him to prison. But soon after he was released, the Italian Socialist Party, increasingly strong and having achieved an important victory at the Congress of Reggio Emilia, put him in charge of the Milanese newspaper Avanti. This intense political activism was followed by World War I, which marked a turning point in Mussolini's life. In the beginning, the leader of the Socialist Party was part of an anti-interventionist movement which opposed Italy's participation in World War I. However, he later joined the interventionist group, which earned him expulsion from the Socialist Party. So he basically left the Bernie bros and became a globalist neoliberal. Skipping down to the philosophical roots of fascism. Giovanni Gentile, a neo-Hegelian philosopher, was the intellectual author of the, quote, doctrine of fascism, which he wrote in conjunction with Benito Mussolini. Gentile's sources of inspiration were thinkers such as Hegel, Nietzsche, and also Marx. Gentile went so far as to declare fascism is a form of socialism. In fact, it is its most viable form. One of the most common reflections on this is that fascism is itself socialism based on national identity. Gentile believed that all private action should be oriented to serve society. He was against individualism. For him, there was no distinction between private and public interest. In his economic postulates, he defended compulsory state corporatism, wanting to impose an autarkic state, basically the same recipe that Hitler would use years later. So no distinction between private and public interest. And we hear all the time about public-private partnerships. We have the United Nations. We have the World Economic Forum. We have all of these transnational corporations and governments all in the World Economic Forum together, pursuing that same agenda together and with the United Nations as the global governing body to enforce that agenda throughout the countries of the world. We are told often that there are public-private partnerships in this country, the election infrastructure, for instance, the voting machines, a public-private partnership, and the private company says we have proprietary coding and information. Therefore, we can't hand it over to anyone to investigate it. We can't hand it over to the people. We can't hand it over to the courts. We have to keep this proprietary information to ourselves. And so, sorry, yes, we run the country's elections, but no one is allowed to investigate us because we are a private entity and we need to protect our intellectual property. That allows the corrupt government to avoid all accountability simply by farming out certain aspects of the agenda to quasi-private organizations that are actually entirely linked in to the exact same system to the point where there is no difference between public and private. And we've talked about the same thing with the X platform, formerly Twitter. States even have public-private partnerships to handle things like voter registrations with organizations like Rock the Vote. The public-private partnership is the regime's preferred model, and we see it happening all across society. Non-governmental organizations, NGOs, they essentially serve the same purpose as private companies. So the government farms out to these NGOs, for instance, 
the slave trade at the southern border. It's a wonderful way of obscuring responsibility and evading accountability. We don't need to find isolated examples from within the false reality to make our case the way Joe Scarborough does about the Trump movement being violent. This is their preferred model. It is absolutely everywhere, these public-private partnerships. And he goes on, the compulsory state corporatism. That is exactly what we have. What he is describing is our society as it exists now, as handed to us by the Uniparty on behalf of the global regime. A basic aspect of Gentile's logic is that liberal democracy was harmful because it was focused on the individual, which led to selfishness. He defended true democracy in which the individual should be subordinated to the state. In that sense, he promoted planned economies in which it was the government that determined what, how much and how to produce. There is nothing about Trump or MAGA that goes in that direction in any way imaginable. Gentile and another group of philosophers created the myth of socialist nationalism in which a country well-directed by a superior group could subsist without international trade as long as all individuals submitted to the designs of the government. Now, countries can exist without international trade. I don't see any reason to believe that you must submit to the designs of government for a country to survive in that situation. That doesn't seem to make any sense at all. The aim was to create a corporate state. It must be remembered that Mussolini came from the traditional Italian Socialist Party, but due to the rupture with this traditional Marxist movement and due to the strong nationalist sentiment that prevailed at the time, the basis for creating the new nationalist socialism, which they called fascism, were overturned. Fascism nationalized the arms industry. However, unlike traditional socialism, it did not consider that the state should own all the means of production, but more that it should dominate them. The owners of industries could keep their businesses as long as they served the directives of the state. These business owners were supervised by public officials and paid high taxes. Essentially, private property was no longer a thing. It also established the tax on capital, the confiscation of goods of religious congregations, and the abolition of Episcopal rents. Statism was the key to everything, thanks to the nationalist and collectivist discourse. All the efforts of the citizens had to be in favor of the state. Does that sound like Donald Trump and MAGA at all? No, all of that is absolutely preposterous. That is anathema to the America First movement. It does represent, to a T, the uniparty structure in the United States right now on behalf of the global regime. The very thing that Joe and Mika are supporting is what they are telling the country that everyone must stand against. They are just taking the responsibility off of themselves and placing it on their enemy, Donald Trump and his supporters. So Joe and Mika will call us fascists. People will eventually find it so comical that they are calling us fascists that no one will actually believe it, but the label has already been applied. And because no one is actually disputing the definition, the definition will stand and the label will stand 
and it won't be taken seriously most of the time until they signal that once again, hey guys, it's time to call them fascists again. And they've done this before. They've done it many times before. And it's usually just ignored. The opinion is marginalized because it's crazy, but the argument is never actually refuted. And the argument can and should be refuted. They can't call us far right and also call us fascists. It doesn't make sense. For some reason, people like Ruth Ben-Ghiat and this Peter Hayes fellow have been largely successful in convincing people that fascism and Nazism are somehow far-right authoritarian ideologies, whereas communism and socialism are far-left ideologies that aren't really authoritarian. You see, they've just never been done right. It's always those Nazis and fascists who are stopping them. Except the truth is, these are all collectivist ideologies. Even fascism is an outgrowth of Marxism. All these collectivist ideologies are centralizing power and building authoritarian and totalitarian societies. There is nothing about that that could ever possibly be right-wing. It is in fundamental opposition to a movement dedicated to sovereign individuals and sovereign leaders guiding sovereign nations. They just don't want anyone to notice that it's actually them. And just to hammer that home, let's cap it off this way. You remember how Joe Scarborough's examples of MAGA violence were Donald Trump encouraged violence in his 2015 rallies. That whole story. Mika chimes in, by the way, with very fine people on both sides. Doesn't even make sense. And then it is MAGA violence to mock Paul Pelosi hammer time because that's MAGA's fault, too, even though it absolutely wasn't. And it was a gay nudist drug addict who already knew Paul Pelosi and other Democrat politicians from that area. A man who, by the way, has a wife who says the event was staged and she can watch the video and tell you, yeah, that's staged. So that whole event, that is MAGA violence. You know what's not violent? This from Representative Dan Goldman. When he talks, he's uh, putting himself into a bigger criminal hole. Uh, but the, but his, that's not his objective. His objective mm. is purely political at this point. Uh, politics don't work in a courtroom, as I think he's finding out in the mm. New York Attorney General's case in New York, a civil case. And, and that's going to continue in his criminal trials. But his rhetoric is really getting dangerous, more and more dangerous. And we saw what happened on January 6th when he uses inflammatory rhetoric now and his recent true social post uh, is incredibly, incredibly scary for anyone uh, that might be trying to op work in government. And um, it is just uh, uh, unquestionable at this point that that man cannot see public office again. He is not only unfit, he is destructive to our democracy, uh, and he has to be uh, he has to be eliminated. So that is Dan Goldman saying that Donald Trump is a threat to, quote unquote, our democracy, and he must be eliminated. Daniel Sachs Goldman is an American attorney, politician and heir who is a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from New York's 10th Congressional District. Dan Goldman is one of the wealthiest members of Congress. This is all according to Wikipedia, by the way. 
with an estimated personal net worth of up to $253 million, according to his financial disclosures. His great-grandfather was the president of Levi Strauss & Co., and he is an heir to that fortune. So a massive corporation, the world's leading denim brand and historic legacy American company, one of the scions of that family is an attorney, a politician, and an heir to that corporate fortune. He's all of those things together. And he is saying that the duly elected president of the United States, the man who is almost a shoe in to have four more years in that position, that man must be eliminated in order to preserve their democracy. And Morning Joe is giving the marching orders to all of the standard issue villagers on the uniparty left. It is their job to create chaos throughout the holidays, even with their own family and friends, because they are collectively so horrified that they must finally use the word. They must call people fascists, because if they don't, people might get along and understand that they have real important things in common and that they agree they've all been lied to and deceived and tricked and taken advantage of and that horrible things have been done to them and been done in their name. And if everybody gets back on that page, that's the wrong page for the regime and they can't allow that. So, hey, you're all fascists. Now enjoy the holidays. I feel like I probably should have done this episode tomorrow and done the episode on all the court cases today, but hey, this is how it worked out. I wanted to be sure we got all the way through this fascism thing. And more than likely, there will be interesting developments on these court cases by tomorrow, and then I'll get to include those in tomorrow's show. So... I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!